was a little alley in San Francisco, back of the Southern Pacific Station at 3rd and Townsend, in red brick of drowsy, lazy afternoons with everybody at work and offices. Welcome to the Feeling In the air, you feel the impending rush of a commuter frenzy. And you may have noticed uh, the intro is a little different today, and that was um, Jack Kerouac reading uh, a poem called October in the Railroad Earth, and uh, accompanied by. Uh, Steve Allen, who was a TV show host uh, in the 1950s, and that was recorded in 1959. And, and you know, Roman, I, I really, I chose that, and I love it because, you know, it has the jazz accompaniment, mm-hmm. which is a huge component of of the beat era and the sensibility. It it has this romant, romantic view of, of America, and particularly the West, and, and that was a big part of it, too, this kind of looking westward. And... Um, uh, you know, the railroads, and of course, this playfulness, this with language, a real sensitivity to prose, which is unique to Kerouac. Uh, not not all of the beats had that same sensibility, but I think just generalizing. Um, so where do you start with the beats? I mean, um, you know, you could start saying that, you know, it, it sort of kicked off uh, at Columbia University when um, I think Ginsburg introduced Kerouac to Burroughs. Uh, Ginsburg and Kerouac were students at Columbia and uh, you know William Burroughs was this kind of older wiser I mean maybe he was you know 27 at the time but <laughs> I mean you could you could spend hours talking about Burroughs so to, mm-hmm. such a weird character yes. but I mean you know you and I loved the beats as as kids and in fact um, you know you're the one who introduced me uh, to the beats you know strangely enough there you were an immigrant from Russia and Israel introducing me to kind of my own literature, in a sense. In mm-hmm. fact, a very local literature. We grew up in Massachusetts, and, and you know, Kara grew up in Lowell, um, you know, just 20 minutes away from where Yeah, it's up. kind of in our neighborhood, yeah. Um, so I don't know. The, the, the Beats, um, when we were kind of growing up in the 80s, there was, they had really kind of almost entered the culture. And, you know, Burroughs had this famous comment that, uh, you know, Jack Kerouac, opened, uh, you know, a thousand coffee shops and sold millions of blue jeans, you know, a way mm-hmm. at, at getting how, uh, in, in a sense, the beat and their countercultural message have been kind of compromised in a sense by the culture, but I think also getting the fact that they had such an impact beyond their their literary uh, endeavors. Oh, and, for sure, um, yeah. I, I don't have a great sense of of how someone who's literary in 15 or 18 or 22 today, um, whether they care about the beats, what they think about the beats, um, we love them and, you know, we can talk about the books we love. But I, ultimately, I'm, I'm curious about, are they relevant to the political and social environment we're in now, which is, which is disordered and chaotic and, and uh, tumultuous? Maybe it always is that way, but it feels particularly like that today. Yeah, but you know what? It seems like it's almost been reversed on its head because what the beats were sort of how they sort of became became a cohesive or a semi-cohesive cohesive unit or being thought of as you know the beatniks or as something as a as a literary movement. They formed as a reaction against. Uh, against conformity, against uniformity, against kind of things being the same, things being um, very conservative. And so it seems to be kind of on its head right now because the establishment right now is the crazy one. The establishment is the one that's, you know, throwing these weird curveballs at everybody. 
Um, and so there's almost like a to rebel against that. You almost need to <laughs> you need to I see. You need to seek order. You need to seek. Uh, you can move <laughs> away from the, the craziness of what the beats introduced to the culture. Uh, so it's, it seems to have kind of flipped on its head a little bit, but I think we're getting a little bit ahead of our, ourselves. Yeah. Uh, because I, I, let's start talking about basically how they, how the Beats were born, because it was right after World War II, right? It was around Columbia University, uh, people yep. like Jack Kerouac, Ginsburg, uh, Gregory Corso, um, they and William Burroughs, of course. They sort of they clumped together, and I have a little bit of a, a little bit of an anecdote. Um, because I, I really I recommend anybody who loves the Beats and who hasn't heard of uh, a, a poet by the name of Harold Norse, N-O-R-S-E, Harold Norse. He wrote this uh, really wonderful memoir called um, Memoirs of a Bastard Angel. Seek this book out if you really are you know, into the Beats because this really gives you a picture of what the Beats were really like. But what I wanted to talk about Harold Norse is how he met Ginsburg. And this is a kind of... Um, kind of a good idea of how they found each other. So uh, late at night, Harold Norris, you know, a young kid, is riding a subway in New York City, and he's reading Rimbaud, a French poet. And it's, you know, it's, a, it's a late night, and the subway is pretty much, the subway car is pretty much empty, except for this other young kid across from him, and he's looking at him, and he's like, he's staring at, you know, he's staring, oh, Harold you know, Norris is thinking, he's staring at me, like, what's going on? And then, he comes over and he goes, oh, you're reading Rimbaud. It's a wonderful poet. So that was, of course, Ginsburg. So they met on the subway, on the subway, just through this, um, you know, a French, reading a French poet, which, by the way, was very important for the Beats as well, Rimbaud and that, that whole thing. Um, and I think that a, lot of t- a lot of the Beats kind of found each other that way. They found each other accidentally through shared interest in, you know, uh, um, poetry. But they kind of clumped together by these this weird... I don't know synchronicities and finding each other. It was kind of this spontaneous uh, clumping together of a bunch of people with similar outlooks. You know, yeah, and and right. I I think the um, the the openness and and release and relief of the end of the Second World War um, was a huge part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, because yes, the fifties were conservative, um, but. There was also, um, because of the, uh, the, the, the economy that uh, the post-war economy was sort of, um, you know, uh, it's booming. off. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and rents were relatively cheap. Um, it, was, it was easy to, to, to be somewhat marginal and uh, uh, pick up work here and there, stay at rooming houses, um, which, which allowed people like Kerouac uh, to be somewhat transient um, pick up work on the railroad, that kind of thing. So there were a lot of factors that allowed um, the Beats to flourish, in addition to the fact that the Second World War essentially ended Paris as the cultural mecca of the world, and that transferred to New York City, mm-hmm. and, and that probably continued uh, until the late 1960s, where um, with, with painting, with the abstract impressionists, people like de Kooning and Pollock and Warhol— um, New York was the center. Um, I don't think there's any doubt about that. So the Beats were able to, you know, meeting at Columbia in the 40s really came about at an auspicious time, you know. Um, but, you know, talking about 
the beats coming together, at, you know, as you did, and, and you mentioned all those characters. I think the, the other part that's worth mentioning, and, and Ginsburg, through his whole life, would always bring this up, is that they actually were really inspired as well by a person who never wrote anything, as far as I know, Herbert Hunky, mm. who was a, 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 an addict and a hustler in Times Square. And, you know, he's often credited with um, originating the term beat. And it was something that that was sort of picked up perhaps from from African-Americans in the city, this idea that the downtrodden, the beat, you know, the people who are at the lowest rungs of society. And I think um, the the literary sensibilities of Kerouac and Ginsburg and Hunky to some extent kind of picked up and, and adopted that. But I've also heard Kerouac say that that's all hogwish and, and also say that really it was something that uh, harkens to the Beatitudes uh, right. in, in the gospel where Christ uh, turns the world on its head uh, against those who are powerful and says, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are mm-hmm. the hungry. And so um, I, I like that because I, the thing I like about the Beats, which I think is often overlooked, and maybe William Burroughs is an exception to this, but there's a kind of gentleness uh to, to the beats. I, I Just before this program began, I tweeted out um, an interview that Allen Ginsberg did with William F. Buckley, the conservative oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, icon in 1968. And he had a show on PBS called Firing Line. And it's a remarkable piece of media for a ton of reasons, uh, but one of which is you know the civility that these two opposites provided to each other, a great lesson in today's climate. But yeah, the, wait until you hear uh, you hear the interview with the um, oh my god, what's his face? <laughs> the uh, slouching towards Gamora. What's his? You know the the, the, the novelist who died, you know, about five ten years ago. Um, my god, drawing a blank. But there's a there's an interview with him and Buckley, and they basically almost come to fisticuffs. So oh, Gorvidal. Gorvidal, thank you. I'm sorry. Yeah, they there. hated each other. Yeah, so and, and, there's a little contrast and, to your gentleness there because that was not gentle, man. They were calling each other names. They were about to really basically pounce at each other right on, on and, TV. And I would, TV. Right, I would add that that's, um, that reflects on the fact that Ginsburg, although in many ways despised what William F. Buckley represented, you know, Ginsburg decided to bring the civility and, and Buckley... Buckley responded, I think, mm. in kind. Mm, I Buckley that. generally, you know, Buckley was not a 1960s, you know, Bill O'Reilly or anything, but he could be right. Him, him and Vidal just yeah. kind of hit each Rob other. And Buckley also interviewed Ginsburg, I mean, uh, Kerouac. Yeah, and Kerouac was really was drunk, drunk. Was drunk off yeah. his ass during that interview. And I know. It's a little sad to see. And Buckley's yeah. kind of poking him and poking him. And, you know, it's, it's not a very, uh, not a very good moment for Kerouac, for sure. No, yeah, mm-hmm. in, in, Kerouac got a little bit Catholic, right, conservative towards the end of his life and admired Buckley in, in a lot of ways. I think he really admired the erudition of Buckley, in, you know, the way he talked, this kind of yeah, refined and he, he also, towards aristocrat. The, towards the end of his life, he yearned for that, that more, of a, more of a recognition and more of a respect because people were dismissing him as this beatnik writer, you know, and he was, you know, I think he was totally. uh, offended by that a lot, actually. Um, and, and so that's actually a great segue about like, you know, Kerouac uh, is obviously central to, to the beats. Uh, it, it's, there's actually the, the, almost like a beautiful triad of the beats where you have 
the very, you know, writerly, novelistic um, Jack Kerouac, who really wanted to be a second Thomas Wolfe, you know, and a Thomas Wolfe of the you, you Can't Go Home Again, right. not the Tom Wolfe of the right. journalistic variety. Right, right. You know, he really wanted to write these kind of lyrical novels that really, you know, expressed all that was big about America and mm-hmm. the landscape, et cetera. So you have that, and then you have you have a poet with Ginsburg, um, as you said, very inspired by the French poets, but also um, Wordsworth and uh, William Blake. Blake. Absolutely, William Blake, yeah, big time in particular. Um, and then you have Burroughs, who the brain. How do you? <laughs> yeah, how do you explain? Well, well uh, here's, here's the triumvirate for me: the the, the sort yeah. of the, the holy trinity of the beats. Kerouac was sort of like the driving engine in a way because he started the whole thing with On the Road. Though he didn't really start it, but you know, he, he was the sort of, like you said, the lyrical engine, the, the embracing all, very Whitmanesque type of uh, approach. Everything is great, so embrace everything. Ginsburg was the poet, and I think his role, besides being a very good poet, of course, and, and, and being in that mode of the beat mode, uh, his role was really uh, publicity. He was a wonderful glue to the whole group. He introduced people to other people. He publicized totally. people. He pushed for things to be published. Uh, he said, read this manuscript and you know, read that manuscript. And, you know, do this, do that. So he was wonderful at that. And Burroughs was sort of like the, the grandfather because he was, remember, he was older than, than everybody else. And he was very uh, cerebral. He sort of provided the, um, the intellectual framework for a lot of these things. Um, a lot of their discussions and a lot of their sort of angles of where they were moving towards. Um, he was also a very mysterious figure because he was, you know, he was uh, he was just older and intellectually very. Um, people were like like what are you ta- what are, what are you all about what is this stuff you know? Um, yeah, he he yeah he he and he um, introduced a lot of. Uh, books of European literature in the European Canyon and kind of pushed them on Ginsburg and Kerouac, kind of read this. Uh, mm. You know, I, re- I remember at one point, um, you know, Ginsburg and Kerouac were amazed. Um, uh, he, he pressed this book on them called um, The Decline of Western Civilization by this German uh, historian. I, I, his name escapes me at the moment. But um, he, he was, yeah, extremely grounded. Uh, he went to Harvard, which if I'm not mistaken. He was from this mm-hmm. kind of fairly wealthy family in St. Louis who uh, his father had created the um, Burroughs adding machine, yeah. which at the time was the standard, I don't know, industrial calculator for for businesses. Is this the idea? Something like or that, I a, believe so, yeah. Yeah, something like yeah. that. Yeah, and I think he, he received some kind of um, uh, well, royalty checks that was, throughout that his was life. That was a, a bit of a... Uh, a point of contention with the Beats because some people uh, later on, at least, thought that Burroughs was this basically uh, wealthy, wealthy guy who you know who received these uh, royalty checks from his family. Uh, but that's not the case. I mean, he he struggled as as much as pretty much any other beat writer. Um, he did get some money from his family, but it wasn't like, like but it wasn't was, much. It wasn't yeah. like he was a cushy set up, you know, <laughs> independently wealthy guy who just hung out with the lowlifes because he could afford to. You know, it wasn't, that yeah. wasn't the... Though some people claim that he, that's what he did. That's, that wasn't the case, really. And, it, and it's also worth pointing out that um, Allen Ginsberg, his, his father was a, like a high school teacher, but also a published poet from Patterson, New Jersey, which is a, 
important literary home mm-hmm. for one of your favorite William Carlos uh, Williams poets. Right. Yeah. Um, so and they regarded, so Ginsburg, the Beats regarded William Carlos Williams as one of their sort of uh, mentors. They would visit him. Oh. I mean, I, my, one of my favorite little anecdotes about William Carlos Williams is uh, Burroughs, uh, Ginsburg, and maybe some other Beats were visiting him at Patterson. And they're like, you know, uh, you know, Bill, can you give us some advice for life and, 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 and art and stuff like that? And so William Carlos Williams goes, he points to the window with a shaky finger. He's getting old already. And he goes, just remember this. There's a lot of bastards out there. <laughs> <laughs> I love that one. But, yeah, so they're all, you know, they're all kind of clumped together here on the East Coast. But remember, the West Coast contingent, um, you know, which kind of split off and became something else, became the San Francisco Renaissance, a different kind of uh, – literary movement slightly different anyway with michael mcclure gary snyder uh, you know all these people who are also part of the beats in a way um absolutely and and the kind of culmination of that was the the famous six gallery reading right, in, City in 1955 mm-hmm. where um right you had uh i think that was when <clears throat> um ginsburg debuted howell and you know kerouac famously was you know sitting uh on the floor in the audience and kind of like tapping on an empty wine jug and yelling out, you know, go, go, go. <laughs> um, and right, you had Gary Snyder, Philip Whalen, Michael McClure. Um, I also want to mention that uh, although the Beats were kind of a boys club, um, Diane De Prima was oh, also yeah, I love a, her. She's a, great. A, a poet who, um, who gets overlooked and um, an African-American writer, poet named Leroy jo- Jones, who was also, again, I think overlooked, but definitely a part of that circle. And I think he also um, really uh, ran afoul in the late 60s of the authorities. Mm. Oh, yeah. He was arrested um, for, I don't remember what it was, but it was generally protesting the Vietnam War and, and, and um, uh, you know, against somewhat uh, peaceful means of, of protest. But, um, you know, the, the, when I think of the classic books from that triumvirate, when I think of Naked Lunch... Uh, from Burroughs, On the Road, and then the poem Howled by Ginsburg. The weird thing is, for me, uh, Naked Lunch, it, it's unreadable. Really? I, I, cannot, I cannot read that book. Aye, aye. I, um, on the Road um, is very readable, but I, I think that um, Kerouac's really st- strong books, the books that I love are um, Dharma Bums, mm. which, which gets into the whole... The introduction of you get of the West Coast Zen Buddhism, yeah, also the yeah, West Coast. You, you, this is the West Coast, book. totally. Yeah, and and this is where Kerouac meets Gary Snyder, and Snyder introduces uh, Zen Buddhism to Kerouac, mm-hmm. and, and ultimately Kerouac is the one that that kind of gets Ginsburg right. Kerouac writes; he wrote a book called the the Book of Dharma or the Dharma Book. Uh, which is essentially yes, I his, have that book. Yeah, all of the Dharma or something like that. Yes, mm-hmm. which is essentially he wrote that as a as a learning text for Ginsburg. So incredible. He wrote like a, you know, here's everything I've been learning in my compendium of, of all things Buddhist. Um, and so the Dharma Bums is like his fictionalized account of meeting Gary Snyder, learning about Buddhism, and then hiking in the, in the Sierra Nevada mountains mm. and, and in mm. the Northwest. Um, so I think that's a great book. And also um, Desolation Peak about Kerouac's time uh, on a mountaintop where he... He kind of had some trouble. Is it Desolation uh, Angels or Desolation Peak? Desolation Angels. Yeah, that's what it is. Yes, I think, Desolation yeah. Peak was the name of the mountain right. where he uh, was. 
he was sitting in a fire watch tower for three months and he, miserable by the way he uh, was he was miserable. detoxing from alcohol and, and he was miserable but look look what came out of this misery it's wonderful yeah no he really um he i remember a line from that book he says my mind is in rags and once the alcohol went away he really um I think he faced a kind of void that he'd been a, a kind of a vo- uh, running from. And then ironically enough, he came down from the mountain. Uh, he went into San Francisco around 1959 or so, and he got word that uh, On the Road uh, had just got this stellar review in the New York Times. And that's when the cyclone for Kerouac took off. Mm. He went from uh, literally a kind of quote-unquote bum. Uh, most yeah, nobody knew about him. Like, I mean, he published one book right earlier, The Town in the River or something the like that. Town in the, town the, the, town in the city, city about, that was, about Lowell. <laughs> yeah, it was like a Tom Wolfe, Thomas Wolfe type of attempt, totally. you know, a big, big book uh, about local life with, you know, lots of emotions. <laughs> Absolutely. And, um, and then he wrote a book that I know that you recommended to me, and you said, you know, Rob, this is one of his late books, and this is a great book. And I agree, it's The Vanity of Delawaze. And this oh, is yeah. like his yeah. semi-autobiographical account of like going to high school, and then he went to some prep school in New York, and then Columbia. And it's just so lovely, because I feel like he's not trying to, uh, you know, be the voice of a generation or to try to outdo Dostoevsky. He, he's... There's an innocence about that book and, and just observations about um, football and fall and, and the books he's reading. It's lovely. Um, I really enjoy that book a lot. Right. But, I mean, so, so you mentioned the voice of a generation. So what, what is that all about, Rob? I, mean, how, I don't know. How, how do the that, beats become, become the beats, is, is, right. I guess, is what we're trying to establish here. You know, how, how do they I, become going from basically um, – on the margins of society to being uh, at the center of society, at least in some respect. Right. You know, I, I think, I think the answer is that book review in the New York times and what I remember reading it at one point and essentially right away, the, the critic essentially put him in the category of Hemingway and Fitzgerald. And then also basically hinted at all the, the sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Not rock and roll, but the sex, drugs, and jazz right. in the novel. Which was, by the way, morphing into rock and roll at that point already. I mean, the rock and roll is also important for the beats because it's, it was becoming – jazz was transforming into something like rock and roll, you know? In, in terms of its, uh, its, its edginess or its, its In terms of its, 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 its youth culture, it's, it's being driven by, by the see. youth culture as opposed to the other way around. I mean, jazz, jazz kind of gave, gave a Kerouac that, especially not just jazz, but let's, you know, let's define our terms, bebop. Specifically bebop, which was being born just around that time in the 40s, you know, with, with, with Coltrane, uh, uh, Bird, and, and Monk, and Dizzy. Um, and Davis, they all kind of like started this new experimental thing called bebop that was really fast and loose and actually not really loose. It was just fast and, and very precise, but uh, flying in the, in the face of conventional jazz and, and, and breaking rules and establishing new rules and kind of um, this, this freeing effect from bebop that get Kerouac really picked up. And you can hear that on the recording we played you know, in the beginning here. That that language is very it's fizzes it pops it's, it's got that bebop rhythm to it, it doesn't stop this it's very kinetic it's got movement, um, but it's not a smooth movement it's this kind of jerkiness but it's a beautiful jerkiness you know, 
just just like mm-hmm. bebop. I mean, you listen to Thelonious Monk in the forties, and if you were there, if you're actually there in the forties listening to him, and you had your ears attuned, to, you know, attuned to um, I don't know, you know, like New Orleans style jazz and the more traditional jazz, you would be like going, "What the hell am I listening to? What is this stuff?" It would sound either, depending on your orientation, either like horrible noise or like something new and exciting, you know? And so that's the beats kind of came out of that, making that horrible noise into something new and exciting, playing with language, uh, just like the, the, the jazz musicians were playing with their with the traditional jazz forms, um, and really almost incorporating bebop into literature. <laughs> I mean, I know you just talked about On the Road, it's not your favorite book. Uh, for me... I read it really early on in my life, right? I was about maybe 18, 17, something like that. Oh, you were you were younger, I remember. Maybe even you 16, probably, yeah. And yeah. it really it really spoke to me at that age. It really really spoke to me even though it was already in the 80s. Uh and you know, Ginsburg was a was an old, you know, professor. <laughs> he wasn't he wasn't that, you know, and of course Kerak was gone already. So the beats were already kind of dissipated that 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 whole energy dissipated into something else, but I was I picked up this book on the road and I was inspired by it. I was really into it. and like, what is this? What is this Zen stuff? What is this? You know, this freedom of movement, this driving. I mean, which, by the way, inspired me. A few years later, I got a job, you know, driving across the country, but multiple times. And that's what I did. I just drove. Um, um, so it really, really, I really liked on the road at that point. Now I tried rereading it recently. It didn't quite go as well. Um, and I remember, I remember going to my friend Dan's place in, in Amherst when I was um, in college, and I was talking to Dan about it. Dan is my age, and then his brother John was there. Uh, John is a very, uh, very smart guy. He was in his twenties at the time, probably mid to late twenties. Um, you know, he ended up going to MIT, studying linguistics uh, with Noam Chomsky as one of his advisors for his PhD type of deal. So, you know, really serious, smart guy. And when he heard me talk about On the Road, he rolled his eyes. He goes, oh, the young people. I didn't know they were still reading that. You know, so I got a sense that that's the book. That's the book's reputation nowadays. It's like it's a has been. It's something that was exciting at one point, but no longer is so. Uh, maybe that goes to the point that you were mentioning before, like how, how does the... The, the, the new generation of readers, how do they respond to the beats? I think they might have a similar similar attitude to, to, that John had, that, meaning it's kind of like, it's interesting, but it's a little fuddy-duddy old stuff. Even though the prose still sings to me, I mean, it still has that that kinetic energy. Um, it just still seems a little bit naive uh, in our context. Yeah, you know? I, I think the, the criticism that... Um, it, 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 gets to the point more is is um, Gore Vidal, speaking of him, his famous quip, you know, Kerouac, that's not writing, that's typing. That's typing, yeah. And, yeah, and so there is this feeling that um, both what makes it the kind of swimming lyricism where you're kind of, you know, caught and an apparent, you know, he wrote it on a uh, an endless roll, you know, supposedly. Um, I, I don't know. I, I, I should look at the book again. I think that's probably... The, the fair thing to do. But, um, you know, my one kind of story that you'll laugh at about On the Road is I think it used to be one of the most stolen books in American libraries, mm. you know, for a time. Yeah. And uh, I'd have to be included on that list. Do you, do you remember we used to go to the, uh, the that beautiful, the Danvers, uh, the, Peabody, the Peabody Library in Danvers? Yes. That? It was a beautiful old mansion. Yes. And so uh, I think you had been like, you had just come off reading uh, On the Road. 
and I was just learning about who this guy was, and, and uh, I was stoked. You know, wow, this is exciting. And so I, I remember checking the book out from the, the Peabody Library, and it was this hardcover. It was a Viking press, and it was like a critical commentary mm-hmm, edition, mm-hmm. so there were all these essays before it. And so uh, I never read probably more than two chapters. And I remember it, 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 uh, it was in, the, uh, in my uh, Ford Fairmont that I had. Oh, yes, I, read, I remember uh, that 1984 car. <laughs> Fairmont. And it was in the back, uh, in the sun, just bleached, bleached it out. It, yeah. it was there for years. And so I, uh, if anyone from the Peabody Library is listening, I, I apologize deeply and if I had it, I would mail it back to you. So. <laughs> well, I still have I, I still have the Finnegan's Wake hardcover that I stole from them. So if you guys are listening, <laughs> I have it here. It's a little beat up now with a bunch of notes in it, but uh, I'll be glad to mail it back to you guys. <laughs> yeah, but but you know, speaking of the book's popularity and people's different views on it, I do remember bringing the book to homeroom uh, in high school. So this would have been I'm just going to 1988, something like that. And I do remember one of our teachers who was probably about 45 at the time. So, you know, baby boomer would have been young in the 60s. And he was so excited to see that, you know, some young kid in 1988 was still interested in Kerouac. So so maybe it's this feeling that, you know, the beats are always kind of being lost. But, uh, you know, uh, I have to think that, you know, writerly, artsy, bohemian type kids who are looking for something different um, must find Kerouac at some yeah, point. Yeah, I, I, and, don't think, um, I don't think he's a writer who's going to disappear with, with the decades. He's going to remain an important writer. People will rediscover his books maybe in a different uh, historical context. It'll be a little bit more, you know, more of a, an excitement about this kind of book. Um, it, it's just... It just doesn't seem like it's really there right now. You know, it doesn't. Yeah, I know. It's, it's maybe not the best book to. I mean, Naked Lunch. Let's let's move on to Naked Lunch now. Naked Lunch yeah. was a little bit of a uh, was was a lot different from other books. I mean, totally. the, he used, uh, Burroughs used a cut up technique. He would cut up a bunch of pages. I mean, and then glued them back together. Not necessarily in a random way, but um, a lot of randomness was also involved. Uh, we also also have to remember that he typed a lot of these pages while uh, intoxicated, while either on junk, on heroin, or or very strong hashish because he was living in in um, Tangiers at the time. Um, this book would have probably never made it uh, to the light of day if it weren't for Giz- for Ginsburg. Uh, the the manuscript, the story of the manuscript of Naked Lunch is really actually interesting, um, but I'm not going to mention it here. It's just it's kind of long. Um, but basically, Ginsburg kind of almost rescued this book and, and really pushed for it to be published. It was, I believe, yes. Kerouac who came up with the title, Naked Lunch. Like everything is yeah. exposed on the fork type of deal. Right. Um, Reality is right So there, he gave bang. it the title. So yeah. it was almost like, a, almost like a communal work in a way, Naked Lunch. And yeah. the reason why it really affected me reading it, and I remember reading it in college. Specifically, I remember reading it in my, in my dorm room at Brandeis. I, I I can picture myself reading it. It's, that's how strong of an impression it made on me, because because of the cut up technique, because of this kind of like a weird mishmash of like um, uh, you know drug literature with some strange bizarre elements to it. I mean, some some folks might have seen this the movie that um, was made in the what nineties, I believe, Naked Lunch, Cronenberg. Uh, yes, yeah. uh, you know, very visually striking movie. 
um, but it has to be read. It's a it's a book. It's not a it's not a visual. It's not a film. It's it's definitely a book first and foremost. And I mean, some of the characters is Doctor Benford, I believe. The doctor there was really scary kind of type of character. Just really, really made an impression on me uh, because of the literary style and the contents, both. Um, and it it actually holds up quite well on rereading. So it's a very different beast from On the Road. Very, very different. You, there's no, right. there's no, you know, there's no bebop staccato. There's no. Um, there's there's definitely kind of an energy to it, but it's a very different kind of energy. Um, yeah, and and it you know to really simplify things, it's almost like Burroughs was kind of the dark angel yeah. of of the group. There's a there's a kind of uh, hardness, um, a, a bleaker view, and a lot of the punks, you know, as you know well, really embraced Burroughs in the yeah. in the seventies. Well, he gave them, um, he gave them the intellectual sort of uh, yeah uh, rocket boost. Because Burroughs totally. was just really, like I said, he was really cerebral. So there's a lot of stuff in Naked Lunch about about uh, drugs. Are you supposed to think about drugs? Um, and you know, there's there's paranoia. There's you know, there's the secret forces working on things. There's it's it right. really fueled the punks. It really gave them a lot of that like fuck you kind of uh, energy. Totally, and it's really interesting if you yeah. trace the lineage. Um, like for example, uh, Patty Smith loved William Burroughs. Mm. Ian Curtis of Joy Division loved Kurt William Burroughs. In fact, one of yeah. his one of his early songs is called Interzone, mm. which I believe was a novel by yeah. uh, science fiction novel by Burroughs. And then on the other hand, you have uh, Bob Dylan loved Kerouac. So there's, there's a different kind of lineage uh, of these. Yeah, kind of well, that's things. what I'm saying. It's but, kind uh, of the, the it's sort of like the just yeah. really simplified. It's the left and the right brain. They're the the sort of the, the rational. It's funny to call Burroughs Russian, rational in this sense, but he provided the sort of that 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 brainy fuel, uh, while Kerak provided the emotional uplift. Yeah, you, you know, um, and this gets to the thing where I, this is the part that I've always wondered. I, I the first thing I have to say is, you know, I've I've read more about the Beats, I've read more biographies than I've actually read their actual work. And it, that always kind of bothered me, and I always sort of wondered about that. But I had to be honest about that. I I find Burroughs' life amazing. Yeah. I mean, he he, you know, went to South America in the fifties looking for ayahuasca. Mm-hmm. I mean, what balls? Way Who ahead does of his this? time. <laughs> and and he treated it the way that um, a botanist or a um, anthropologist would. Yeah. He took notes. He wrote a book about, what was it called? The Yage. Um, well, it's not a book. It's, 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 it's his the letters. letters. It's his letters with Ginsburg about that trip, the Yage, the Yage letters or the Yage letters. Yeah. yeah. Um, incredible. He, he um, accidentally shot his wife in Mexico. Mm-hmm. He was doing a little William Tell Number. experiment. Yep. And did she, she died, I believe? Yep. He killed her, and he was arrested, and they had a hell of a time getting him out of a Mexican prison. I mean, he was very close to being basically in prison for life in Mexico, and only through a lot of you know weird machinations, machinations that he, they were able to get him out. Um, he, you know, then yeah. he he goes to uh, Tangiers in Morocco and like kind of loses himself in, to be frank, uh, Moroccan young Moroccan prostitutes, boys, boys uh, and drugs, drugs. yeah. And, and he was known uh, as the, the think, invisible, the, invis- the invisible man in, in Tangiers because he would just, 
you know, wear his fedora hat and this great coat and he would just walk around and uh, in this kind of uh, ghostly way. And his trick, he said, his trick to being invisible. And I, I've tried this before. This is kind of an interesting experiment. Uh, yeah, maybe you can try that one, one day. Um, his trick to being invisible, by invisible, he basically meant that nobody really paid attention to him, even though he was this, this you know, white dude in Tangiers. Uh, but he said that he, the trick to doing this, and you can try it out on any city street, is to make sure that you look at people first. Before they look at you, you look at everybody. And so they don't look at you. So you become invisible. <laughs> I've tried that and it kind of works. It kind of works if you just like really intently are aware of everybody around you and, and given this kind of the evil eye, so to speak, you just kind of walk around like nobody, nobody kind of really notices you. You know, he, he had a lot of these like little practical Wisdom things. One thing I remember he, he said to, I think, uh, Kerouac when they were living together or spending time together, he said, every time you go to the kitchen to get something, just pick one dirty plate up off the coffee table and put it there. And, and by the end of the day, you realize you will have cleaned <laughs> all the crap from the living yeah. room. And, and I, I thought that was a very practical kind of thing well, and i actually yeah. tried to practice it no, for i mean uh, burroughs was full of that kind of stuff it was full of these yeah, ideas totally. these weird ex- experimental things that he would try and he would suggest that his friends would try that too uh you know what later on when he lived in paris he he collaborated with uh, brian geisen yes. on this weird um yeah. uh, light motion thingy that he would that, that kind of put you in an altered state of consciousness and of course the whole there was a beat hotel in paris that i believe did you visit that when you were in paris i did it's now a boutique hotel but there is a little sign <laughs> boutique beat hotel. front <laughs> oh it's a fancy place uh, now. yeah i'm sure yeah hmm. um yeah you know and and um you know can, speaking of burris and the legacy like towards the end of his life he um he was in the movie Drugstore Cowboy, the Gus Van Sant mm-hmm. film uh, with uh, with Matt Dillon, uh, playing a, actually a, playing a Catholic priest who uh, had been defrocked and is a drug addict living at a uh, kind of a halfway home in in Seattle, I believe, or Portland. And then um, even at the very end of his life, you know, Kurt Cobain of Nirvana, mm-hmm. you know, I think traveled to his house in Kansas. Yeah, there's a famous uh, photograph of them. So he, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so... So he continued, to, he continued you know, to inspire people all the way until his death in that way. Um, Which, by the way, Ginsburg, but you all, Ginsburg didn't particularly. Ginsburg became more staid and more, you know, he became basically, he started teaching, uh, was it Brooklyn College or somewhere, somewhere in Brooklyn. Um, he, he trimmed his beard. He became more, you know, the elder statesman. He, yeah, he mellowed the, the out. He mellowed out. Of... Burroughs mellowed out to a certain extent, but he was he was he always had that kind of edge to him that never really went away, uh, which is yeah. why you, you know there, the, he, yeah, the punks kind of gravitated towards him. Th- there's this. Um, I, I tweeted it out a few weeks ago. Um, there's a wonderful documentary on YouTube called The Source, and it was uh, it focuses on the triumvirate. And when it begins with the, the section on Burroughs, it was filmed in 1999 and Burroughs was still alive at the time. And so there's some kind of beat symposium at a university and there's like an audience full of like a thousand mm-hmm. people. And so Burroughs at the time is living in this little house in Kansas, which is a whole nother yep. story where he Lawrence, used to shoot Kansas. his guns yep. and so forth. And and so the the uh, master ceremonies gets uh, Burroughs on the line, you know, and he says, ladies and gentlemen, we have William Burroughs on the line and they all clap. Uh, do you have any words of wisdom for you? And so Burroughs gets on and he goes, he said, um, I can tell you when you're uh, 
doing a business deal with a religious individual, make sure you get the. No, I'm try, uh, he, he said, uh, make sure you get the contract in writing when you're dealing with a religious <laughs> son of a bitch. Yeah, yeah. I, I screwed it up, but um, no, but you, you, you know, got this, his voice pretty close, man. His voice is very distinct, very distinctive, cranky. Uh, yeah, got this metallic edge to it, almost non-human. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Insectoid? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what to call it. <laughs> but, you know, how about this as a, as a way to think about things? In, in a culture where um, uh, we have gay marriage, where homosexuality uh, arguably is, is already or becoming a fairly uh, accepted norm, and, and it's worth pointing out that both Burroughs and Ginsburg were gay, mm-hmm. in a world where you know, sex is still is, is pretty, pretty open. It's certainly far more open on our media. And, and I don't know, I feel like people, even in the office, joke about sex a lot more than they probably would have 20 years ago, when, you know, marijuana is legal in, in Oregon here where I live, you know, yada, 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 all of these sort of, um, all of these social, all these prohibitions that the beats had to kind of deal with, and also, taboos that they could sort of push with all of those kind of gone basically um, i mean we, there are still all sorts of conservative forces pushing back politically and etc but i i wonder uh, would the beats are they still relevant in that sense because they in in i well they, you say they re, they rebelled they rebelled against something and now we have Maybe like what I mentioned before, like the reverse situation, right? Is yeah, but I, but I, but I, what I, what I also want to say is is that, but what the beats also introduced, and this is to me personally, which was very valuable and was still not that common in the '80s, and certainly not common in the '50s, was they were um, kind of citizens of the world. They thought of them that self way. They were very mm-hmm. um, international and cosmopolitan in their viewpoints. And so um, Eastern religion, right, was something that I first came in contact with through the Beats. They also lived and traveled abroad. This was important to them. You know, um, Ginsburg spent tons of time in India and, and uh, you know, he, he visited communist countries during the, during the Cold War. As we mentioned, Burroughs was in Burroughs North Africa. was always moving. He was always on the move, yeah. Yeah, and you know, you talked about how, in some ways, that book inspired your yeah, your, your job. I I went to South America and absolutely inspired by. I wanted to backpack. I wanted to live abroad, and and I can say for sure that it was from this idea that, as a young person, like I need to get out of America. I need to be exposed to stuff, and you know, uh, Ecuador in 1997 was still a pretty rough, obscure place. It was. Um, I guess it's changed quite a bit now, but um, it was an adventure. You know, I had malaria and and uh, did all sorts of things, um, met lots of crazy, crazy folks. And that was directly inspired. Yeah, so I think it's definitely a beat type of experience, what, right? I think what is still relevant is this idea of uh, a kind of global awareness, a sense of, of openness to, um, to things beyond your own backyard. Um, and, you know, the United States is always facing this this challenge of, like, looking inward and, and kind of, you know, being parochial and, and 
the, you know, I think the beats um, uh, does it, does, re- refuse to be parochial. There's a famous quote, uh, and I'm not sure if it's from the beats. It's somewhere in the back of my head. Something like it's, it is not necessary to live, but it is necessary to travel. It's kind of this enigmatic kind of, um, I'm probably misquoting it. Uh, but you're right. I mean, it's for them, travel was, was a way of getting out of the routine. It was a way of getting uh, off the, 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 the hamster wheel and doing something different and, and you know, rubbing your, your neurons against something completely different that, to inspire you, to make, it, to make you see things anew. And that's why I, um, I'm going to repeat this recommendation because not a lot of people know about Harold Norse. He was kind of sort of part of the Beats. Um, he lived to be almost 100 years old, I believe. So he lived, you know, he was a friend of uh, Auden's, um, of all the Beats. Uh, Bukowski was very close to him, really liked him. Bukowski, by the way, is sometimes mentioned as a Beat, but that's problematic. Um, yeah. But yeah. I really recommend this book, um, Memoirs, of, Memoirs of a Bastard Angel by uh, Harold Norris, because he really, he travels so much. It uh, goes to Italy, meets a lot of the beats there. Uh, you know, uh, just just really wonderful book about about the beats, and that's that's one way to get a grip on the beats uh, in context is to read stuff as it was happening uh, about as it was happening. Like for instance, one of the best books on the beats if, of the real beats, not the movement, not the not the idealized version, you know, not the academic version. Uh, believe it or not, is William Gaddis. You go back to his first novel, The Recognitions, and there's, you know, written in the 50s, and there's, there's, there's a ton of scenes of Greenwich Village scenes of this artistic milieu, and it's not always a positive depiction of them at all. Um, uh, it's kind of a mixture of, of, of good and bad, you know. But uh, he talks about, uh, almost directly, I believe, mentioning Sherry Martinelli, who was an important beat uh, woman, who kind of a kind of inspired a lot of the beats uh, and other people as well. Um, so there's a bunch of party scenes in Greenwich Village, all that, 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 that the early beatniks, you know, uh, doing their thing. Uh, so if you really want to get a sense of what it was like to be uh, part of the beat scene, at least in the, East, you know, in the, in the village here in the, on the East Coast in New York, uh, read the recognitions because it will open your eyes. You'll see the beats differently. Um, you know, it's just a very, it's a very different perspective on, on the scene uh, before it became, because it was already actually becoming, remember beatnik, the term beatnik is a derogatory term. Well, at least it started as a derogatory term. Uh, you know, it's kind of like you dirty hippie, hippie type, of, type of term. To- totally. You know? And it's, it's, it's amazing. You can actually see um, in the mid fifties, I've seen, um, you know, silly, network television shows that are already making fun of yeah. uh, beatniks where they have people with like black turtlenecks and hitting bongos. Yeah, there was and, like a scene in, the, in the, uh, not Mikhail's Navy. Uh, what was that island show where they got stuck on an island? I got him. Gilligan's, Gilligan's island? island? Yeah, Gilligan's Island has a scene with a beatnik. You know, he's uh, whatever the Gilligan, I guess, is. <laughs> he dresses up as a beatnik. <laughs> and they make fun of them, you know? Yeah, and, and this is part of the, the tragedy of Kerouac to go back to, as you said, he was, you know, yeah, hearing drunk and firing line. That, yeah. He was, because um, his au revoir, his whole collection of books, he, he saw it as 
um, this this Delawaz, um, uh collection of books, like trying to depict this entire uh, way of life. Um, and his his model was William Faulkner, and William Faulkner thought all of his fictional work fit into this fictional depiction of this um, southern county. I, I won't pronounce it correctly, but Yonkneptawtawa right, right, County, right. right? So Faulkner had this grand vision of of this work depicting this whatever, fictional life. And, and this really inspired Kerouac. And he, he was such a serious writer. And he, um, yeah, he became a caricature. And, and it's too bad that uh, he didn't have the, the sort of public persona or the kind of playfulness of Ginsburg, who was also made fun of a lot. But Ginsburg would, you could actually see in that interview with William F. Buckley, there are times where Buckley tries to make fun of him or does make fun of him and, and tries to be a bit cruel. And, and Ginsburg will play with it or ignore it. And he knows that he's held as a example of ridicule to a certain type of American at that point. But he's willing to allow himself to be made fun of to make a point, to, to say, yes, my politics are naive, but it you know, dropping napalm on civilians. Is this right? Is this a rational, right. civilized way to act? And so Kerouac couldn't defend himself, really. I think ultimately he was, yeah, whatever. He was, he uh, was really, he was, he had a tough shell, but he was a softy inside. I mean, that's, you can see it in his books. I mean, there's a, lot, there's a lot of beauty, a lot of sort of feeling in his books. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, um, yeah. Now, I was just going to say that, I mean, we have to, yeah, I keep coming back to this uh, this one lecture that I, I attended at college with my favorite professor who said something about science that stuck in my head, and I keep repeating it to a lot of other things, a lot of other situations. Basically, what he was saying is that real scientists, and by real scientists, yeah, he meant people who are doing uh, stuff at the frontier of science, not not people who are just kind of doing routine work with science, which is also fine, but that's not what he was talking about. He was talking about you know, real scientists who are just engaging in new type of work they have no idea what the hell they're doing in the fir- at first. While they're doing it, they have really no idea. It's only afterwards that things become a little bit clearer, a little bit more defined. But they, again, they have to keep breaking that in order to make anything new. And by to make anything new, they have to be in a position where they don't really know what they're doing, what's going on. And so, so that's that's kind of what one way of, I'm thinking about in, in general about literary uh, movements, Roman, but about about the beat specifically. Oh. You know, in the 50s, in the 40s, when they were creating this, the, the initial sort of surge of the beats, uh, they weren't defined particularly as this you know, very cohesive movement. They were just a bunch of people doing things that are kind of similar in the same vein, but not really. But you could tell, so they were, you know, they were egging each other on and helping each other. And so as they were creating this, this incredible um, cultural output, they didn't really know what they were doing. They were just creating it. They were, you know, you, you just do it. You don't think about what you're doing. You just do it. But, you know, and then as things, as things started working out in the late 50s and 60s, things start really moving fast in our culture, right? In American culture, in the West in general. Just things start really moving fast. You, got, you have this youth movement, incredible huge youth movement that just went from the beatniks to the hippies and kind of took over the culture a little bit or a lot I should say and and so then things started getting defined back you know backwards and that's when he got into trouble 
uh, with people like Kerak who kind of wanted to hold on to that, but it was things are changing and he couldn't really change with the times. Ginsburg was more, yeah. much more successful, uh, I think, at changing with the times as, as, as well as Burroughs. He kind of kept up with things. Like you said, he, the, the punks eventually adopted him in the 90s. So he kept on being relevant that way. Uh, as, as well as Ginsburg, I think Ginsburg had a lot of that creative power to kind of remain with him. Um, but but others fared less well, you know, because they didn't yeah. keep moving. They didn't keep challenging themselves to create something that they had no idea about. So they they kept reworking things, old things, which is I guess yeah. how literary movements in general they start with this incredible creative burst, right? Like you know the Dadaists, you know, Dadaists or the Surrealists. Um, this incredible birth, you know, birth of this thing, and then this thing becomes defined and ages and gets crusty and, you know, yes, people get inspiration from it, maybe to create something else, something different, but the thing itself is already past. Yeah, you know, for sure. And and I also want to mention, I think it would be remiss if we didn't mention, um, again, not a literary figure in the sense of someone who produced really much of value but um we haven't talked about neil cassidy and of course <laughs> i mean talk about you know one of the most important yeah. kind of human beings in terms of influencing um many of the beat writers he was the model for dean moriarty the one of the protagonists in on the road and um you know was was just this by all accounts um one of the most amazing human beings to to just be around a, a kinetic person of endless boundless energy and ideas who if you you can type his name into youtube and you can see some yeah. interviews with him and he talks a mile a minute yeah. and ideas would just because he was usually on speed <laughs> but yeah yeah um and and uh, i heard uh, a documentary with jerry garcia the the grateful dead mm-hmm. uh lead singer and he knew uh, Moriarty, he knew Cassidy in the late 60s and, and Cassidy used to come over to the house that the dead lived in in San Francisco and he said that he could sit at a dinner table with 12, 14 people and he could hold a conversation at one time with at least 10 of them. Mm. He was able to do that. His mind was uh, incredible at processing yeah. all this. And he, yeah. had, he had love affairs with both Ginsburg and Kerouac Kerouac was was bisexual, uh, I think, as it's sort of come out with memoirs and so forth. And um, but I think represented like particularly to Ginsburg and Kerouac, the West. He grew up in Colorado and he had been uh, in a reform school. He had kind of uh, he was working on the railroad. Um, right. And his thing was driving. He, he was driving. driving yes. And he introduced. Right. Because right. Kerouac didn't have a license. Kerouac. Didn't Thank know how God to drive, for that, because it was always was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> amazing fact. Hmm, I didn't know that. Hmm. Yeah, That's, and so he he really uh, he needed uh, Cassidy to to get him out to get him out beyond cities. Yeah, and, I mean they would uh, cross the country multiple times. I mean uh, Cassidy yeah. ended up being a driver for Ken Kesey's bus. Further, the bus is called Further. Uh, you know, with the Merry Pranksters, he was associated with them as well. He, he was, like you said, he was this, this maelstrom of, uh, no pun intended there, uh, of, of energy, of this creative energy. Um, he did write, I mean, he, did, he wrote these incredibly yeah. long letters to Kerouac, uh, like, you know, yeah. 20, 30 page letters uh, with this manic prose that kind of matched his manic mind. 
he was always on the move. I think for him, status, stasis, you know, not movement, was death. Um, yes. And I think appropriately enough, and, he died uh, on the railroad tracks, I guess, part of the movement <laughs> idea. Yeah, he did. In he Mexico died, right. somewhere. In Mexico. Long, right? Just uh, kind of a sad death. But he, he, he was one of those people who, you know, burned bright and he, he just died young because he just burned so bright. Uh, totally. I think he, he died, you know, he was probably in his mid-40s. Or, or even earlier, like I think. Even earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he, did, he did publish a, a memoir called, I think, The First Third. Which is oh, sort of the right. first third that's of his right. life. I think he had planned uh, some kind of longer work. Um, and I also want to mention just to, again to think about the the surrounding context of the Beats is um, one of the elder statesmen who was at the Sixth Street the Sixth Gallery reading was the writer poet Kenneth, uh, Kenneth Rexroth, mm-hmm. and so he actually connected them to the the kind of twenties and thirties uh, Bohemian. Uh, kind of socialist, communist kind of scene. So kind of the, um, I guess, the early American bohemians, so to speak. He was probably in his 50s when the Beats were young men. And so he was an important link, which I think is often overlooked. And uh, he had come from Chicago. Yeah, and, and he, I think, I think he's, he's the one who um, influenced uh, Snyder a lot as far as the, the looking eastward, because Rex Roth has a bunch of, uh, did yeah. a bunch of translations of Chinese, early Chinese poems. He was really into that. Totally. Um, and you're right. I mean, you're right. We sh- we really shouldn't think of the beats as springing out of nothing, ex nihilo. You know, they they, exactly. they came from a certain type of tradition, uh, you know, a certain type of they they yeah. did. And I think you you can also think of it as a tradition that also produced uh, Woody Guthrie. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, this is when the depression and you had you had a serious number of serious people in the United States saying. If capitalism has led us to this, this depression, then maybe we need to take seriously, um, you know, communism. And so I think being a communist in the 1920s and 30s was um, a very rational and legitimate uh, approach. I mean, particularly, we, you know, we don't know about the crimes of Stalin at that point or the Cultural Revolution in China hadn't happened. And so, um, yeah, these were some of the radical political and social Ideas yeah. that that certainly they they sort of took upon. But the other part, um, which is a whole nother episode, but personally important for me, and I think you know you as well, is they also um, connected uh, American literary scene to the modernists in Europe. Um, uh, for example, like Ginsburg and Burroughs, I believe, went and visited Celine, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the the amazing French writer who is, I think, completely disappeared, I think primarily because he was a, an anti-Semite and uh, a fascist you really, sympathizer. You really think he's disappeared? I mean, I, I, I see a lot of references I, to Celine. I mean, people, people still read him. I mean, I've read him for sure, but I guess I'm an exception to the general uh, rule. But You know, it's, a, it's, a, it's just an anecdotal observation yeah. about, you know, if you, I'm interested in him and I've, I've, been considering writing about him, so when, when I do that, I'll tend to Google. But and see you're right. I mean, the latest the latest news about Celine is anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism. Yeah, more and more stuff came out that's anti-Semitism. And it's, I think the last story I read about him was related to anti-Semitism. Or is it? You know? And and so you know that's a fascinating topic yeah. of you know uh, you know bad guys who write great books, and you could almost argue this about Burroughs as well. I mean, I I, I don't know if I would have want to spent a lot of time with William Burroughs. Personally. Yeah, 
Yeah. There, there <laughs> seemed to be a kind of evil cloud around him. Um, but yeah, you're, you're totally right. There's a, a famous quote by the Philip Roth, a Jewish-American writer, who said, uh, Celine is my Proust. Um, you yeah. know, so his literary merits are, I, I'm still astonished by his books. And um, it, it reminds so, me of, so uh, beats, just, 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 just to add a little point that somebody, I forget exactly who it was, but I think I read it in the David Markson novel, something. <laughs> um, basically said, talking about Wagner, you know, Wagner's you know, anti-Semitism and how to deal with that as an artist, because he was, you know, a very good composer, of course. But uh, he's, the, 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 the person basically said that Wagner's music is going to heaven. Wagner is going to hell. <laughs> yeah. So, so we got to separate yeah. the work from the people producing it because, you know, one, one thing is not necessarily tied to the other one in, in moral terms, you know? It to- totally. And, and, you know, like, I mean, uh, you know, you're, you're, politicians should uh, – uh, if your politicians are anti-Semites, uh, you know, the citizens of your town, this is a f- big-ass problem. But, um, you know, these writers, obviously, they, they have some kind of moral problem personally. But the, the work of art... Uh, it should stand on its, its own the feet. Work of it art. should stand on its own feet or fall, you know? Um, I, I yeah. agree. I, th- I think uh, probably a hugely unpopular... Uh, point of view right now, but um, well, look, I mean, it's, it's a, yeah, it's a point of view that should it's be, an old, it's an old argument. You know, Beethoven was an asshole, so what? You're not going to listen to his music? I mean, he was an asshole by all accounts. <laughs> he was a jerk to a lot of people, you know. But but it's still Beethoven. I mean, still going to enjoy his late quartets and think of them as basically the, the apex of uh, chamber music. I mean, that's what I do, you know. Yeah, but but it's definitely yeah, it's not totally. an argument we're going to resolve anytime soon. Um, totally. Because people right. are should complex. I, I not watch people are com- I'm not making I... excuses for anybody, yeah. but people are complex. But whatever they create should stand on its own, uh, or you know, should be judged on on its own. But there's other other yeah. points saying, well, you should always tie work to its author, um, which I like to do. I and mean, we all like to look at biographies and see how these people composed these works or wrote these works. You know, we're all kind of interested in the process uh, of a living being creating something that we think is amazing. Um, but the morality, the moralizing is a little bit, um, can be a little heavy handed sometimes, you know. I agree. And, and so I would encourage, um, you know, readers to check out uh, Luis Ferdinand Celine, C-E-L-I-N-E, and um, a novel journey to the end of the night. And you know, keep in mind that he was uh, personally despicable in this particular way. But the book itself it's is powerful. It's absolutely Oof. astounding. Oof. And it, it, it completely blew away the beats. Um, but to continue, they, they also, um, you know, uh, Proust had a prof- profound effect on Kerouac, um, as well as Dostoevsky, and, and the Russian writers were, were hugely important. So I think sometimes at least... Um, American literature can be somewhat um, hermetically sealed off from the tradition, and I think that the nice things about the Beats were that they were um, they were very connected mm. to 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 world literature. They were international, and, and as we mentioned, they were definitely international. They were international, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And and you know, the, this is also uh, pre MFA America, where writers <laughs> did not <laughs> go to these uh, finishing schools and learn a kind of um, formal technique for getting published. So you know, you, you have, you have, yeah. I mean, I agree with you. There, there is a, a little offshoot. I'm not 
that's probably not the right word, but they connected to the beats were the Black Mountain poets, which kind of yeah, kinda, yeah. It, it wasn't that by any means an MFA type of situation, but it was basically a tiny school. Was it North Carolina, I believe, that had these all these writers and painters and artists in general uh, working together, and it's kind of almost like a like a think tank for artists, you know. <laughs> Right. Um, so they did have they did have some sort of uh, early sort of academic uh, representation that way, you know. I'm not comparing them; they're not the same. Beats and Black Mountain people, but very similar. They're, they're definitely inter, inter, yeah. you know, interlaced here and there. So you know, Roman, we're we're at about an hour, so we're at our our kind of more or less stoppage point. Is is there anything that? Uh... Well, last last things to add. We haven't really addressed your original uh, questions. What's going yeah. on today with the young young the, well the young ones with the young folk? Yeah. What are they up to? Uh, do they still read the beats? You said that in your anecdotal sort of observation. No. Um, to tell you the truth, I probably have to agree with you because I don't. You know, I when I go on the subway here in New York, I don't see people reading on the road, and uh, I used to see people reading on the road. At least not on the subway, but in Boston. But whatever, you know, it's just, you don't, it's an academic subject now. You go to, you know, university, you take a class on the beats. Um, are they still inspiring us? Um, well, my son is 22, and he hasn't read the beats, but I think he might like them if given the chance. The problem is there's so much cultural noise going on nowadays. It's hard to... Uh, you know, it's hard to come up with uh, sort of a, a curriculum for somebody and say, here, this is where you should go and read uh, if you're in your 20s. Um, it, uh, and also long form. Long form reading is disappearing slowly because of the digital craziness. Um, though I heard something interesting, Rob. That I, was, I was listening to something about digital minimalism, which is what I've been doing all along. You know, I don't have a lot of apps on my phone. I don't check my phone every couple of minutes. I'm, I'm not one of those people. I just I use it for calling people. I don't check my email on my phone. You know, I just I, I basically try to free myself from the phone slavery. And and this person uh, that I heard the interview about digital minimalism, he was saying that more and more people are yearning for that. And what, when they do it, when they say, you know, he's got a whole method about like you eliminate all the apps on your phone that you don't really need for 30 days and you slowly add them only if you super duper need them. But his point was that uh, he, you know, he's done this with a lot of people um, and people tell him that when they start doing that, when they sort of move away from being digitally uh, always engaged and move away from that, they start have getting that attention span back so they can actually start reading long form books again and enjoying them and and following them and not you know leaving them after a couple of pages um so that it's reversible is my point so my point is that maybe there's going to be a new sort of a cultural trend towards moving away from being always digitally uh engaged and when that happens um if and when that happens um long form books will once again sort of be in vogue and if and when that happens i think uh the beats will see a little bit more of an interest from the younger younger people younger generation because they do provide a lot of inspiration uh in whatever context historical context you are because they're they're both for individualism 
you know, being a, a free person to do whatever you want, and also a community of those kinds of people, which is almost a paradox or a contradiction, but it works. You know, in reality, it does work. So I have hope, but I don't yeah. know. I, no, it, it, it's a great point. And, and I, I want to just key on one thing you said about, you know, the fragmented culture that we have today, uh, frag, you know, this digital culture. But it's really interesting. I think I mentioned before we recorded that I'm, I'm reading uh, Robert Musel, uh, Man Without Qualities, the great German modernist work. And in the 1930s, he, he wrote this. And there's a character saying, um, uh, you know, but we know the picture art presents today fragmentation mm-hmm. everywhere, mm-hmm. extremes without connections. So, um, you know, even in a pre-digital culture, I think people felt like, you know, there was so much going on. And, and so I think works of art will always have to compete with a lot of noise. Um, and, you know, hopefully uh, sometimes it takes a little bit of luck and serendipity for a book to survive or be represented to a new generation. Yeah, and but these things are cyclical. I tend to think right? it's They're substance. They're cyclical. Things they, come you know, around again. But I again. think that substance will, yeah, will generally keep a book afloat. But um, before we end, uh, if people have never read anything about the Beats, I would just throw out two books. My two recommendations would be pick up The Dharma Bums by Kerouac. Mm, short, nice, nice and short. Novel. Yep. Yeah, and then if you want to learn more about Kerouac's life. There's a lot of biographies, but um, I found the biography called Memory Babe to be the best. I don't recall the biographer's name, but that's a great biography. Um, so Roman, two, two books. Uh, if, you, if people are curious about the beats, what would you recommend? Um, yeah, like I said, I, I, again, for the third time, I'll, I'll repeat my Harold Norse recommendation. Harold Norse um, Memoirs of a Bastard Angel. Hard to find book, but I, I, it's not just about the beats. It's really you know, 80 years of American poetry and or because the guy lives to be so old and but he travels abroad he, he knows like I said Auden he knows a lot of these people um, and it gives you a, a kind of a, an insider's look at, at that whole generation and, and then some and if anybody's really adventurous I really <laughs> William Gaddis at some point we're going to have to have a, a show on Gaddis because he's so pivotal for me um the recognition is not an easy book to read, guys. It's huge. I don't know, seven, eight hundred pages. Um, modernist classic. Um, very little read today. It's it's a lot about art. What what is art and what is real art? What is forgery? What is fake? Um, and in the process of of sort of dealing with all these issues, Gaddis uh, has incredible descriptions of uh, uh, scenes from. The artsy fartsy Greenwich Village of the 1950s uh, that you won't get anywhere else, really. Um, highly recommended. And of course, there's there's books like um, Kafka Was the Rage the, uh, by Anatole Broyard, but that's really more about the, the village scene um, a little bit later on. Um, and uh, Gary Snyder, Gary Snyder is still alive yeah. on the West Coast. Yeah. Uh, his poetry is wonderful, it gives you that sort of sense of, of what the West Coast beats were like. Um, so his poetry is definitely uh, still around and, and worth reading. Um, yeah, so those will be my recommendations. Nice. And um, I'll, I'll say uh, upcoming, um, we're going to be having... Um, Ooh, a special episode. A, a special, yes. Yeah, we'll be having um, a, a wonderful uh, uh specialist in in hebrew and arabic literature his name is josh calvo 
He's uh, finishing a PhD at Princeton, and he's going to be joining us in the future uh, to talk about uh, the Arab world in terms of literature, uh, what's happening in, in uh, Israel with literature, as well as just, I don't know, we, I think we've been talking about the, the Mediterranean as a, a cultural entity, which is a fascinating sort of idea. His, his background is, is quite uh, interesting, if I recall. He's uh, from a Syrian Jewish family. Um, he uh, grew up in, in the States, but... Um, On the Jersey kind of Shore of all places. <laughs> yeah, um, but I think he, you know, he has an interesting perspective on on that. And then I'll also say that um, uh, we thank our sound engineer uh, on this episode is Heston Hoffman. And Heston, you may recall, joined us for an episode on Ursula K. Le Guin. And he'll be joining us uh, at a future episode. We're going to look at the South African writer uh, Kutseya, which is someone I've been really meaning to tackle. I've been a little intimidated by him. but So we'll do that on a future episode. So that's about it. Um, you can follow me at Robert Fay one on Twitter, and you can follow Roman uh, at Zenju. So that's it, Roman. It's been awesome. It has been. And yeah. we'll talk next Let's time. Let's beat it. All right. Okay. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Bye. See you, man.